Here we are at last, the final episode of our series on the Persian Empire. We've been through the Medes, Cyrus, Darius, the Battle of Marathon, only to arrive at the finish line. Xerxes, son of Darius. It pays to remember where it all started. The Medes got tired of living under the Assyrians, so up they got one day and took over. Then the barely heard of Persians got tired of living under the Medes, so up they got one day and took over. Then Darius got tired of living under the rule of Cyrus and his offspring, so up he got one day and took over. And then Darius got tired of the Greeks hanging around bringing disorder and lies everywhere they went, so up he got one day and tried to take over but couldn't quite manage it. They got close, but no banana. Stopped in their tracks not so much by the Greeks, although let's not make light of their contribution, but rather by a growing revolt in Egypt that needed seeing to. Unfortunately, while preparing to deal with that, Darius died, and the whole Persian kingdom, along with all its current problems and various little messes left behind at the end of the first Greek campaign, got handed to Xerxes along with a broom and a note from his father that basically read, Clean up a bit, would you, son? Now, we all know that Xerxes was some kind of big, evil freak with a booming, overmodulated voice and a penchant for cruelty. And someone was clearly listening to Greek and later propaganda when they wrote that character in the movie. Other problems with the depiction aside, it's exactly the sort of villain you get when you're more interested in spectacle than accuracy. And certainly, the Greeks were more interested in spectacle than accuracy, especially the Athenians, what with all the plays and poems they had to write about it all. See last episode where dead kings and their armies show up to help the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon. But ignore the bit about the dog. It probably didn't happen. The real, and here we are making liberal use of air quotes, the real Xerxes wasn't really like that though, of course. If you've learned nothing else from this show in the entire course of its six-year run, let it be that the one thing you should always do when presented with a fact everyone knows to be true is to immediately find it sus and vote it out the airlock. The real Xerxes was reportedly a patient, sensible, and intelligent man who was nonetheless impressionable, nervous, and a bit lazy. Just to see what sort of impression he made elsewhere, you can generally take it as written that he is the king referred to in the book of Esther in the Bible as Ahasuerus, about whom you can hear in our 2020 Holiday Special Part 2, a collection of some of the bonus episodes we do for our Patreon supporters. Look what you've been missing. But we have to be kind of honest here. There isn't much known about Xerxes, really. We have Herodotus, of course, but again, he was a Greek writing for the Greeks. We have the Book of Esther, but that was Jews writing for Jews. There's a play called The Persians by Aeschylus, written about 472 BCE, but that wasn't just the Greeks writing for Greeks, it was also meant as entertainment. And there's some what are basically folk tales written in the 10th century CE, which does no one any good at all. The worst part of the whole thing is, most of what was known about him was all from the Battle of Thermopylae and the subsequent second invasion of Greece. And we already said we weren't going to talk about all that and then compare and contrast it to the movie about the same subject. So we have to talk around it. Besides, as a piece of entertainment, 300 is as good a piece of Greek propaganda as anything the Greeks themselves wrote. 
comic or movie. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. When Darius died, he left plenty of unfinished business. It was clearly business he intended to finish, though, because he spent several years planning it all. There was the Egyptian revolt to put down, and those pesky Greeks that still needed teaching a lesson. Darius was on the verge of launching the Egyptian campaign with himself at the head of it when he kicked the royal bucket. Fortunately, he'd already picked Xerxes as his successor and heir. This was notable because Xerxes was Darius's second son, not his first. But by picking Xerxes, Darius linked the ruling line back to its beginnings because Xerxes' mother was a Tosa, daughter of Cyrus. And Xerxes didn't lack for experience ruling, either. By the time Darius died, Xerxes was 35 and had been ruling in Babylon for a decade already. You'll remember that Darius had some problems with Babylon all through his reign. Well, it was Xerxes that finally brought the place under control and made it less troublesome for his father all the way around. So good job, Xerxes. Here's a bigger crown for you to wear. Of course, like Darius, the first thing Xerxes had to do when he ascended to the throne was deal with rebellion. The Egyptians again, naturally. Or rather, still, because the Egyptian rebellion had been going on for two years already. Who was in charge out there, and what had they been doing? Well, if we're honest and we take a look around the rest of the Persian Empire, we're forced to remember the Ionians and how all the satraps appointed over them for years on end took advantage of their position and became tin-pot tyrants way out on the edges of the empire. Theoretically, far away from the thoughtful gaze of the throne. It's quite likely that the Egyptian satraps, which you will recall is a sort of royal governor, the Egyptian satraps were abusing their power until the Egyptian citizens had enough. They threw down the satraps and put their own man on the throne. Technically an usurper, but hey, what you gonna do about it? Well, what you do is plan a big campaign to restore order and get things back in line and put someone whose name you know back on the throne. And really, aside from this being the project his dad died in the middle of, this was sort of a perfect first project for Xerxes to take on. It wasn't too complicated, the goals were clear, the financial rewards were strong, and it let Xerxes open his reign with what looked like an easy military victory. So easy that he was confident enough to lead the army himself and head out to Egypt. But, we expect, he was also mindful of what had happened to Cambyses when he'd gone on a similar mission a generation ago. Too much fooling around in Egypt was how you got unexpectedly grievously wounded in the leg with your own sword. In any case, Xerxes was successful, though he was forced to use much more harsh methods than Darius was usually known to use. Xerxes appointed his brother to run Egypt in his stead and turned towards home. The only problem was, the campaign had taken two years and used up most of the Persian army that had been put together by Darius from all over the empire. If Xerxes was ever going to get to his next project, subjugating Greece, he was going to need another army to do it with. Fortunately for the Greeks, the Babylonians decided to act up. Again. Again. In fact, not one, but two pretenders to the Babylonian throne had popped up and started another revolt. Well, two revolts, we suppose, one for each. And fair is fair, the throne was more or less vacant because the person who had held the position of king of Babylon... Xerxes had just spent two years in Egypt, and you don't leave a power vacuum like that lying around unattended because it will try to fill itself. 
Well, he couldn't have that, so Xerxes went down and dealt with the first revolt. When that was settled and the second one cropped up, he sent his son-in-law with instructions to sort things out once and for all. And boy howdy did they get sorted. Not only did he put an end to the revolt, but he also destroyed all of Babylon's fortresses, removed anything of value from all the Babylonian temples, and pulled down and destroyed the statues of the Babylonian god Marduk, just to make the point, which was a pretty big change from the way Xerxes' father had dealt with things. The problem was, once this was done, Xerxes could no longer claim to be a personal representative of the Babylonian gods. After all, if you were tearing down statues to them, you certainly couldn't claim it was because they wanted you to do it. And he'd done a similar thing in Egypt as well, to teach them a lesson, and run into the same problem. Few people were going to view this in a favorable light, least of all the priests of those same gods who were pretty sure that wasn't how the Chosen One was meant to act. Up to that point, Xerxes, like his father before him, had been able to call himself King of the Persians and the Medes, King of Babylon, Pharaoh of Egypt, each independent kingdom under the Persian banner getting its own call-out. But once he removed the god's own statues, he as much as admitted the end of the facade and simply referred to himself thereafter as King of the Persians and the Medes, leaving Egypt and Babylon to be treated as any other subjugated kingdom. One of the key differences between Xerxes and his father was that, if anything, Xerxes was even more serious about Zoroastrianism and Ahura Mazda than his father had been. Where before Darius had been content to let the people he was conquering continue to believe in their own gods and practice their own religions, because it kept the peace and didn't interfere with his belief in the one true god of all gods, Ahura Mazda, Xerxes appears to have seen things differently. Ahura Mazda was indeed the one true god, but with his actions in Babylon, he also declared that Babylon had been full of devas. The gods before Zoroastrianism came along and explained about truth and order and lies and chaos. According to Xerxes, what was worshipped in Babylon was no better than Druze itself, and so should be exterminated. Unless, of course, the story of the destruction of the statue and the ransacking of the temples was put about by the Babylonians themselves in an effort to discredit Xerxes and weaken his power. Because no one is really sure that Xerxes did much of anything beyond quelling the revolt. Not much is written about it, and historians tend to disagree even on the point of whether there was a statue, whether the statue had been destroyed or just removed from the city, whether it was melted down for gold, or whether it was even a statue of Marduk and all and not just some civic leader of Babylon who'd sold the most Girl Scout cookies. Something definitely happened because of the revolt, but no one is sure what. It is even pointed out that all the usual Babylonian religious celebrations still took place, though it seems clear some of them were changed a bit after the revolt because of the new Persian leadership. All that seems to be certain is that Xerxes stopped using the two titles, King of Babylon and Pharaoh of Egypt, after getting things calmed down in Babylon. Which means, finally and at last, Xerxes could turn his attention back to Greece and settle accounts there. Well, if he felt like it. See, with Babylon and Egypt back in line, the Persian Empire was pretty quiet. And really, Xerxes was pretty tired of campaigning at this point. He'd been preparing for fights or actually having them for six years at this time, and frankly, that's a lot of excitement and activity for a new king who was, as we mentioned, really pretty lazy when it came right down to it. 
he would really have been quite happy to just call things there and settle down to a nice, peaceful, and above all, quiet rule. And you remember last week when we told you that the reason Greece and Persia had so much trouble getting along was because all anyone had to do was glance Greece's way to see how badly organized they were and how easy it would be to show up and put on a crown and run the place? Well, there's another reason they had so much trouble. See, we mentioned the Athenians voting people out of Athens each year because they thought that was somehow going to make democracy more democratizing, right? And then we explained how the first thing most of the exiles did was try to get back into Athens by finding some allies and getting their political rivals exiled instead. Well, there was one really big, really powerful place looking for some inside information, and therefore allies of their own to help them really put the Athenians and all the rest of Greece in their proper place. Persia. But that's not all. No, sir or madam, that is not all indeed. There was one other source of ready allies for the exile looking to go back home. And that was everyone else who had already been exiled and wanted to go back home. And by now, Athens was exiling people on such a regular basis that all the exiles were having to hang out sorry were full notices on their clubhouses. And once a bunch of them got organized, they headed off to Persia to knock on Xerxes' door and say, it looks like you're invading Greece. Would you like help? and then hiding the cancel button behind some obscure notification. So, while Xerxes would really rather have stayed on the royal couch watching Persia's Got Talent, he had all these Greek exiles in his ear telling him how easy it would be to take control of all of Greece, leaving each of them in charge of their own special piece of it, of course. If only he'd follow their advice. What could possibly go wrong? And as if that wasn't bad enough, in his other ear he had a general named Mardonius, looking for a bit of payback on the Greeks too. Years earlier, under Darius, Mardonius had been one of the generals sent in to put down the Athenians and Eritreans after they helped out with the Ionian revolt from last episode. And well, you heard how that turned out. So badly that Mardonius had lost his command over it. He very badly wanted a chance to prove his worth once again. So every time Xerxes looked back at the jugglers, there were the Greek exiles saying how easy it would be to take all of Greece, and Mardonius going, yes, let's, please. So that was the other reason Persia and Greece couldn't get along, besides how badly organized Greece was. The Greeks kept inviting the Persians to come invade, and the Persians kept taking them up on it. Because, of course... Eventually, Xerxes got tired of it all and gave in. For the next three years, Xerxes made both diplomatic and military preparations to go back to Greece and knock the place over, which, again, he was assured would be very, very easy by all the people who had a vested interest in seeing it happen and would, they believed, finally get to show everyone who kicked them out or cost them their job just who was in charge now. Of course, when it came right down to it, it didn't actually look very easy. There were troops to assemble. According to one source, Herodotus again, either one million or five million soldiers, but slightly more realistically, according to later estimates, somewhere closer to 360,000 from everywhere across the empire. They came from Assyria, Phoenicia, Babylon, Egypt, Macedonia, India, and even parts of Greece itself. And then, of course, there was the navy, somewhere between six and eight hundred ships, again from everywhere Persia controlled. 
There were canals to dig and bridges to build, including a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont, what we now call the Dardanelles, which sank in the middle of construction and required Xerxes to throw some manacles into the water and whip it 300 times to rein it in so a second attempt could be made. Well, that's the story anyway. And still, provisions and rations had to be stored up along the way for both the outward trip and the return. Oh, and 10,000 immortals. Let's not forget them. Basically, Xerxes hand-picked bodyguards. Even the cavalry was back in spite of the trouble they'd had in Marathon. And off they all marched, rode, or rode to Greece to begin the most thoroughly planned invasion ever seen. At least until a little incident in 1944. Which was a shame, because it was all pretty much useless. Because, you see, in spite of all the encouragement about how easy it would all be and how all these Greek exiles would be happy to help the king plan things out along the way and advise him with all the best advice, and gosh, wouldn't it be grand if one or two little appointments were made as a reward for all the hard work they'd put in? Not one of them bothered to tell Xerxes what it was really like once they got past Thrace nor were any of them prepared to face the new reality of Greece or capable of believing how things had changed. See, when you move a lot of men, whether it be 5 million or 360,000, it's important that they all sort of be able to move together at generally the same time, in generally the same place, and in generally the same direction in order to be effective. If you can only fit, say, a thousand of them into the open spaces available to you, then the other 349,000 might as well not exist until after the first thousand are dead. And even then, it's only the next thousand that count. Those kinds of numbers might work well in the open plains and deserts of places like Persia and Egypt, but there just wasn't the kind of room in Greece to make 350,000 men effective all at once. It sounded like a big number, and it was, but it wasn't a useful big number. Mostly what 350,000 armed soldiers do is use up 350,000 armed soldiers worth of rations and supplies on a daily basis, and if they don't make sufficient progress, that's not going to last long either. Which is why Thermopylae, the hot gate, happens like it does. It's not that Leonidas and the Spartans were particularly tough individuals, though they were, it's that they never had to fight all 350,000 or 5 million soldiers at once. But you can watch the movie to see how that panned out. It's accurate enough in its own way, as long as you understand the difference between historical documentaries and fictionalized accounts. And as long as you don't mind that the story the movie told was presented as a propaganda piece for the Spartans back home, rather than an accurate portrayal of what Xerxes and the Persians were really like. Seriously, the film makes that clear at least twice. But the other, much more significant problem the Persians faced that no one, not even the Greeks and Xerxes' army, were prepared for was what had happened in Greece while the Persians were preparing for the second invasion. Greece was, the last time they were there, a complete mess of city-states running around without purpose or direction, a chaotic mishmash of ideas and identities that just didn't gel and couldn't be counted on to agree on anything. Was being the operative word. And to be fair, Xerxes did make it to Athens and did have much of it burned to the ground and it seemed like he was on track to take over the whole of Greece in very short order. 
But he didn't really get the people. The Athenians had pulled up sticks and moved off to an island when the Persians came around, and with them were the people of several other city-states prepared to aid in the defense of the one thing Athens had that really mattered. Her people. Sure, it took a lot of convincing to make it happen, but consider. Athens had won the Battle of Marathon against overwhelming odds. Sparta had just run a successful, if doomed, holding action against the largest army, bar none, ever assembled in ancient times. Greece had faced other challenges as well in the intervening years and done so successfully. All of this unlooked-for success was suddenly very encouraging to all the Greeks. And so, what Persia found when it entered Greece and tried to take it over was a Greece that was trying something entirely new to it. Just as Athens was learning about democracy and how it could work, the rest of Greece was learning about working together toward a common goal and that together they could hold off the world's largest army. And then Xerxes blinked and made mistakes, and his fleet was destroyed. And in a campaign he didn't want to have, in a place he didn't want to be, with an army he couldn't really feed, and with winter rapidly approaching... Xerxes left a small force behind at the suggestion of over-eager Mardonius, under his command, who promised to finally take care of those Greeks once and for all, and headed back with the majority of the army to Persia. Besides, Babylon was acting up again, so there was that. The next year, the Greeks, who really were all Greeks by now, rallied their forces from several of the formerly divided Greek city-states and ran Mardonius to ground in Plataea, killed him, and defeated his army. In 465 BCE, Xerxes is assassinated by the commander of his royal bodyguard for reasons not everyone is clear about, but which everyone agrees involved treachery at court and high-level shenanigans. Between that and the defeat by the Greeks, the Persian Empire reached a turning point and began to diminish, never quite able to recapture its former glory. Not long after, Greece and Persia reached a peace agreement, and no more talk of invading was heard. And that's the story of what was, until our old friends the Zhang Yu came along in 176 BCE, the largest empire the world had ever seen. Thanks for sticking with us through our Persian phase. We're glad you made it and we hope you enjoyed it. We'll switch gears a bit for the remainder of May, thanks to some notes we've received from our listeners. As ever, it is our patrons on Patreon that make it all possible. Without their support, we never would have made it to six years worth of episodes. Yep, we had a birthday in April. If you'd like to help support the show, head over to gmwordoftheweek.com and click the yellow banner there or go straight to the support page where you can find a variety of options to help out. For more details and a more complete picture of the Persian Empire and its troubles with the Greeks, we have to once again recommend the book Persian Fire by Tom Holland. He really does tell a fascinating story that covers far more than we could ever hope to do in just a few episodes. We'll link to it once again in this episode's description. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian. Theme months are fun, 
Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, these are the countries of which I was king. Medea, Elam, Arachosia, Armenia, Grangiana, Parthia, Aria, Bactria, Sogdiana, Karosmia, Babylonia, Assyria, Sadegidia, Sardis, Egypt, Ionians, those who dwell by the sea, and those who dwell across the sea, men of Maka, Arabia, Gandhara, Sindh, Cappadocia, Dahe, Amerigian, Scythians, Pointed Cap Scythians, Scudra, men of Akafaka, Libyans, Kareans, and Ethiopians.